Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Kreis. He is professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Assessment School of Journalism and Media. His research explores the impact of technological change on the public sphere and political practice. He is the author of books like Taking, uh, Taking Our Country Back, The Crafting of Networked Politics from Our Dean to Barack Obama, and Prototype Politics, The Making and Unmaking of Technological Innovation in the Republican and Democratic Parties 2000 to 2014. So, Dr. Christ, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great. So let me first start with, uh, I guess, a simple question. So nowadays people talk a lot about the new media, but what exactly is the new media? Right. So, so new media is a term really that, that received widespread usage in the 90s and, and 2000s originally to capture a moment of a move from a broadcast mass media system to one that was increasingly being structured around digital technologies um, that afforded many different types of communication than simply one-to-many. So it supported one-to-one, also one-to-many, many-to-many, um, small groups, all the things that we come to recognize today as being different about digital media than things like television and broadcast stations. So. Um, it's a bit of a problematic term. Um, all media was new at, at some point. Um, and I think it's more accurate to say really what's what's of concern when people say new media is digitally networked technologies. Um, so um, uh, technologies that have a digital component that are networked in some ways um, and uh, all the sorts of human computer, uh, human communication and human to technology communication that happens on top of it. Mm -hmm. And okay, so now going into politics, when exactly did political campaigning first start on social media and new media? Yeah, so I, I mean, this is a complicated history. Um, so in the United States, uh, we saw the first candidates come online in the mid 1990s. Um, the first candidate websites were launched. They were generally static web pages uh, that had lots of, um, you know, they were very content rich. They sort of detailed the policies that candidates were running on. Um, what you started to see around, um, you know, 1998, 2000, um, were increasing sort of usage of things like email, uh, as well as audio formats to um, create a more dynamic form of communication between candidates and representatives and, and voters. Something that was going to happen more regularly uh, could happen more informally, right, than a static web page that spoke to everyone. Uh, and then really by 2004, um, that was sort of the, the first Internet election. Um, what you saw in 2004, uh, candidate Howard Dean on the Democratic side of the aisle um, really built many uh, proto social media technologies. Um, I say proto because that was an era before the social media platforms as we know them today, um, which didn't really have sort of widespread usage in, until, or even invention until uh, around the 2008 election cycle. But in 2004, Howard Dean, you know, built, uh, built technologies that enabled people to build their own profiles and connect with other people. Uh, he used the social media technologies of their time, uh, like Friendster, uh, like Meetup, um, in order to, you know, facilitate connections between voters and supporters. Um, what you started to see were candidates uh, no longer sort of in a very top-down way controlling a, a message, um, but trying to sort of build tools that would empower supporters to organize their own communities, um, to pass along the campaign's message within their own friends and family networks, to um, have that message radiate outwards. And then really by the 2008 campaign, uh, presidential campaign in the US, you saw Barack Obama very uh, famously 
um, use and harness uh, emerging technologies like Facebook, um, but also a lot that they built in-house as well of uh, following the Dean model, um, really sort of captured this new thing that was social media at scale. Um, again, it wasn't wholly new, um, but what I think it really sort of had by 2008 was just widespread um, usage by uh, by the electorate. And, um, you know, the Obama campaign was enormously successful at using social media to drive volunteerism for his campaign, to drive donations, um, to help with the organizing um, that went into a lot of that campaign to promote this, you know, relatively unknown uh, junior senator uh, to the highest office in the country. Um, so I, I would sort of mark it to be like the 2004, 2008 cycles. Um, in that time, you know, um, platforms such as Facebook uh, really sort of received widespread usage that candidates didn't have to build their own tools anymore. They can sort of um, capitalize on existing ones. And then ever since then, every cycle, we've seen some new uh, some new technology um, that in turn has sort of reshaped the way that candidates run for office and engage their supporters. Okay, but is there evidence that the new media can shape political narratives? Oh, a hundred percent. So this, this works in many different ways, right? So um, there, so, so, let me say it this way, right? So, so social media and new media do a, do a few different things, right? One is they provide candidates with resources outside of existing institutional channels, right? So this is the story of Howard Dean in 2004, Barack Obama in 2008, right? Um, both of those candidates faced um, much more well-known, better funded, better, better financed institutional candidates. Um, uh, for Howard Dean, it was John Kerry. For Barack Obama, it was Hillary Clinton, right? Um, what social media and digital media enabled these candidates to do was in part to route entirely around the political party and use technology platforms, either the ones that they built or the ones that they used, to do things like raise money and to engage volunteers. Um, there's simply no way that Howard Dean could have raised $50 million over the course of one month, uh, over the course of the primary campaign in 2004 without the internet. And there was no way that Obama could have raised $50 million in one month alone, four years later, uh, in the course of running his primary campaign, if it wasn't for um, digital media. The fact is, technologies like mass media are just very expensive. Obama would have had it done thousands of press interviews, uh, raised money for lots of ads, and then relied on people to go and write a check uh, and then mail it in, right? The internet provided a very potent way to get your message out and to raise money. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think we saw very fully on display in the US, and there's lots of examples around the world, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, for instance, um, uh, but ways in which elected officials, political elites, and candidates can use social media in order to set the agenda of the professional press. Um, again, the most famous case here is Donald Trump. We have really robust social science evidence that shows us that every time Trump tweeted, um, the, it would set the agenda for the entire media ecosystem. Journalists would write about what Donald Trump was, was uh, tweeting about. Uh, partisan media would write about what Donald Trump was writing about. Um, sometimes, you know, that also meant the mass of citizens as well, but oftentimes they were one step removed, right? Um, but then we'd see, right, the agenda setting that was being done by the, by the president. So um, it absolutely can be used as a tool to set the agenda of the professional press. It's been done in very effective ways by people like Donald Trump. Uh, who have looked to use social media in order to shape the dynamics of the media ecosystem to his advantage. Um, so we have, you know, very robust uh, evidence of that. I would say a, a third way um, is that what we've seen a lot in, in very recent research, particularly on right-wing extremism, are ways in which digital technologies are used by actors on the right in order to set the agenda also of the of the mainstream press and the sort of legacy public sphere. Um, so my colleagues uh, at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life, 
uh, such as Alice Marwick, Francesca Tripodi have sort of documented time and again how um, right-wing propaganda or fake news or fake information will often start to appear on very fringe sites uh, in the far right. Um, and then it would start to get taken up maybe by a little bit more of a legitimate outlet like Breitbart, and then it would get covered by Fox News. Um, and then by the time Fox News was talking about it, that then was also then setting the agenda of ABC and CBS and CNN, including right what, what the president was saying uh, when Trump was in office, right? So um, what we would see is that social media and digital media provided new avenues um, for these sorts of influence campaigns. Um, last, I'll just say this, um, I would be remiss uh, to answer your question and not mention also the extraordinary power uh, that social movements have had um, when it comes to harnessing digital and social technologies. Look no further than Black Lives Matter, um, which was fueled and powered um, you know, by thousands of activists around the country, filming, uh, discussing, amplifying um, uh, film, including direct eyewitness videos of acts of police brutality, um, amplifying that, using that as a tool for accountability, uh, creating hashtags and memes and other forms of culture in order to give it more visibility to the point when people who are powerful could no longer ignore it. Um, so that's another way that activists, I think, and social movements in turn have sort of harnessed these new tools to shape narratives and the very definition of what we see as public problems. Mm -hmm. Do we know if digital media influences specifically voting behavior? Yeah, this is a harder one um, causally to sort of tease out. And, you know, political scientists for a really long time have sort of been taking up this question. Um, we have very limited uh, evidence, for instance, for the effects of, of political advertising, for instance, delivered on Facebook and, and Google. Um, however, we have more evidence that, you know, political advertising on Facebook and Google can deliver resources for campaigns, things like email addresses and uh, money and volunteers, et cetera, which in turn also has an influence on, right, how, how you're going to engage voters and, and wh who voters are going to pull the lever for. Um, I would say that, you know, there's lots of indirect uh, effects of digital and social media on voting behavior. Um, just simply because it's part of the very fabric of the ways that we engage in political communication today. There's there's no online and offline. There's no social media um, uh, that's not sort of woven into the very fabric of democracy. So it literally is just another battleground for what candidates do and, and what they say. Um, you know, think about it this way, right? Like all the major newspapers in the U.S. and often around the world are also distributing their um, information on social media platforms to be shared, right? So therefore social media has an, an effect, an indirect effect because they shape attentional dynamics uh, and they shape sharing and access, right? Um, but they also enable their users to have comments inserted around it, right? But that's a dominant way people are receiving their political communication now. So it absolutely has an effect in some way. And that's why candidates spend so much time, money and energy to try to set the agenda and use these platforms to shape potential and issue dynamics um, in, uh, you know, in the digital public sphere sort of broadly. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, so if I had to boil it down, um, digital and social media matter for the information that voters have uh, for the frames that they encounter in the course of the election cycle about what candidates are running on and, um, you know, which actions are good or bad, et cetera. Um, it matters um, for what voters actually see in terms of topics and issues discussed and, and what is not discussed. Um, and it also matters because it provides the very fabric within which so much news and information and commentary and political opinion uh, gets circulated and gets distributional attention. So for all those reasons, it absolutely influences how people vote. But are there lots of other things too? A hundred percent, right? People's partisanship, their social identities, their economic class, um, the various coalitions and the two parties, the state of the economy, perceptions about the state of the economy, um, big issues like immigration and terrorism and abortion, all those things matter too, right? So it's not to say that social media is the, the key determinant, 
but it is the forum within which all those other things get debated and contested. Mm -hmm. But still related to voting, I mean, are there issues regarding voter privacy in this era of digital media? Yeah, 100%. So in the US, um, we do almost nothing on privacy ever. Um, so there's a lot of issues. The EU um, and various countries within the EU have gradually been expanding um, you know, their, uh, their legislative frameworks um, about sort of how they're going to regulate the ways that data get, gets used. Um, but let me outline sort of the big potential issues, right? So, so uh, for one, um, there's just vast amounts of data uh, on every member of the electorate, pretty much in every contemporary democracy around the world. Um, and that data takes a, a few different forms. Um, one important source is simply what voters themselves give up. So uh, anytime someone's knocking on your door to canvas you or making phone calls in the context of an election, um, or you know you attend a political rally and somebody interviews you there or get your name and email address and phone number, all that makes its way into a political database somewhere. Um, a second category of data is uh, data, at least in the U.S., um, that we make, uh, states make available to candidates for office, which is uh, public data. Um, so which party are you registered to? What's your address? Oftentimes other public records like, um, you know, division of motor vehicle records or real estate records sort of make their ways in this database, your turnout history, party registration, all this stuff gets provided to candidates as well. Um, and then the third big piece, and I think this is something where the EU has been out in front trying to, to regulate, um, is data that comes from social media platforms, right? So, um, you know, Facebook, for instance, has a vast trove of data uh, on every American citizen uh, that uses the service and often people who don't. Um, and that's true for many other countries around the world. Um, that data exists around things like likes and shares. Um, of certain content, various aspects of people's user profiles, their engagement, et cetera. Um, how Facebook packages that and enables that to be used uh, for politics um, is complicated. They don't just give that data over to people, but what they do do is say, look, you can advertise if you're a political candidate to certain types of people. Or far more commonly, um, campaigns will come to Facebook and say, look, I have a list of voters and I wanna reach other voters who are like them, right? Um, and what Facebook can help do is facilitate that interaction so that people can get their message out uh, to those sorts of people. Um, all which raises lots of implications for privacy, right? So on the one hand, um, in essence, people have very little transparency into the vast stores of data that's collected uh, by them uh, and about them, right, um, by many different entities, campaigns, parties, commercial advertisers, political uh, you know, political actors, et cetera. Um, they just don't have a lot of knowledge about what's out there and how that information is being used. A second, and I think you see a lot of fears in this, is that particularly around things like Cambridge Analytica, right, which is sort of uh, the big UK-US scandal of the use of Facebook data to target voters around Brexit. And then in the context of the 2016 US election campaign, that idea that data could be used to personalize certain political messages to have voters vote against their interests. Um, we have very little direct evidence of that um, actually happening, both in Cambridge Analytica, but that, that even it's possible to do that. Think about personalizing many messages at scale, it's just infeasible. However, it is true that these vast data stores, stores are just bought and sold uh, on a market. We don't really know what they're used for and why they're used, and it does raise all sorts of questions um, for ways that could be misused or used in ways that cuts against somebody's, uh, somebody's interest. Um, the third big area of concern, and a, a lot of scholarship has sort of raised this as being a potential concern over the years, um, we've seen less evidence for it, at least now, but it remains a concern, is that with more and more forms of political surveillance uh, online and on platforms, people just might be less likely to engage in public life uh, and have political debates and conversations, right? If they feel like they're being watched, it might have this chilling effect 
uh, on political speech because you know people might not want to be um, outed politically in front of their employers or their friends or their family. Um, so it raises those sorts of interests, which is, you know, do we have a right as a member of a uh, as a member of a public and a citizen to engage in public life on our own terms, right? And and that can be debated in various ways, but there certainly is a set of privacy implications um, that might come from you not being able to to control your own disclosure, right? Or the ways in which you're actually engaged in, in public life. And that might harm some people's abilities to participate. Mm -hmm. Has digital media influenced in any way the dynamics of how political parties organize themselves? Yes, um, a lot. Uh, and, and this is, I think, exactly where you need to look for effects primarily, not directly on voters themselves, although that matters. Um, I think what's far more, um, what's being far more sort of shown in many cases around the world are ways in which digital and social media have effects on political institutions in various ways. Um, so let's go back to the story that I told earlier, right? So already we had seen in the mid-2000s in countries like the U.S. Um, that candidates were able to route around institutional party structures in order to get resources directly from the electorate. In some ways, that's an older story that was also true to some extent with open primaries and, and mass media attention. But um, think of that on steroids uh, 30, 40 years later, when all of a sudden, not only could you get your message out, but you'd be raising millions and millions of dollars online, basically as an independent candidate, if you have a message that's catching on. Um, all well and good when that's in the service of democracy. Um, but when you have a populist authoritarian candidate like Donald Trump, um, who's able to use social media to help set the agenda of the professional press and build an independent base of support entirely apart from the Republican Party, um, then it raises really serious questions about can parties even gatekeep anymore in order to protect democracy. One important role of parties is to keep would-be authoritarians away from levers of power, right? That's why we have party nomination contests. They're supposed to be the ones who vet candidates and say, you know, not only who fits with us ideologically and from a policy perspective, um, but keeping dangerous people away from formal offices. Um, and arguably in 2016, that was the biggest failure of the Republican Party. Um, and one that showed the power not only of these media dynamics, but especially of social and digital media dynamics that helped Trump rise to the presidency um, and prevented Republican Party establishment gatekeepers to keep him away from office um, because they just couldn't coalesce around the candidate. You saw the flip side, by the way, in 2020, where the Democratic Party establishment rallied around Joe Biden to keep out outsiders like Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders is not anti-democratic, but that was the party exerting its own control. In 2016, that was a real big failure of the Republican Party, was that the institutional elites were not a, a, able in this new media environment to exercise the control and checks that they needed to uh, over Donald Trump. I'll say a third area that we've seen, and, and we've seen this now with the Facebook whistleblower, um, uh, in the Facebook papers that came out of the most recent whistleblowing um, episode here in the in the states, but concerning Facebook's role globally, um, is uh, there was a, a report, internal Facebook research, that showed that uh, with interviews with European party uh, members, that literally the stuff that was performing best on Facebook was being a key determinant in the decisions that parties were making to run on certain issues and how they were going to run on those issues, right? So Facebook as a platform optimizes for engagement, right? Like they wanna keep you spending more time on Facebook. So therefore what they reward are things that you're gonna find most engaging. And that tends to be highly emotional content, extreme content, um, content that's very ideologically and identity consistent with who you are, right? They want to serve you more of that because Facebook, because it delivers ads to you, wants to keep you using Facebook for many hours every day. Well, um, th if that's the landscape that political parties need to compete in, 
Um, in essence, what they were telling Facebook in this report was, we then started to develop content that was more extreme, that was more emotional, that was more appealing to our base because we found that Facebook rewarded that um, with in turn more engagement. They fed it to people, people engaged with it, and therefore we continued to double down and create even more of that content. The implication now is that based on the ways that Facebook monetizes its content in certain ways, they're providing incentives for certain forms of political communication and not others in much the same way that candidates long figured out that journalists have certain norms, right, for what's going to get press coverage and then they would tailor their message to things that would be most likely to get press coverage. It's often not the sober policy analysis, right? That's the stuff of the hard work of governance in democracy, right? These are issues, these are trade-offs, right? It tends to be the most performative and highly emotional and engaging content that gets rewarded. And in that way, platforms are shaping the very dialogue that exists within public life and public space. Mm -hmm. So another big topic of your work, something you're very interested, interested in, is how changing media environments impact the organization and practice of journalism. So did that also happen with the advent of digital media? Yeah, absolutely. So that you know, there's a there's a corollary story there, right? So, um, as platforms in particular, Facebook and Google, um, become literally the choke points for much of public communication itself. In essence, everyone had to be every journalist had to be disseminating their wares on Facebook and Google. Not only that, these platforms dominate the commercial advertising market in many countries around the world, right? So. They were also then reliant upon Facebook and Google for the traffic, right? That could monetize their own journalistic products and in turn support the production of future journalistic products, right? So what we've seen is that journalists have had to adapt to this new platform era. So oftentimes you'll hear critiques of things like clickbait headlines, right? Um, that's bowing to the dynamics of this new digital public sphere that rewards um, certain forms of uh, content, particularly emotional, scandalous content, eye-catching content, right? The most performative content in order to drive traffic because that's the only way these publishers can actually monetize um, uh, their wares in some way, right? Um, we've seen these uh, journalistic organizations have to continually adapt to uh, ways that the platforms have of, of working. So you often see, for instance, like there, when Facebook started to reward video, journalism organizations pivoted to video. Um, when Facebook rewarded um, uh, certain other forms of content or the formatting content, they would have to position themselves in this way. We've often seen journalistic organizations caught in the web of, of Facebook's um, digital advertising policies. So if they put restrictions on political ads, for instance, journalists often get caught up in that too. So they're not even able to advertise in the ways that they might want to advertise. The broad story is platforms have become more powerful vis-a-vis -vis many other institutions in society, um, especially journalists, because journalists just have less revenue available to them than they've had in the past. They have a harder time controlling the distribution of their news uh, goods. And they also have a harder time monetizing their news goods than in the mass communication era. Um, so and if for all those reasons, they're more at the mercy of a Google and a Facebook than they used to be before. I should also say is that this is something that we've seen very differential to across journalism organizations. There's been some winners, the New York Times, right, the Washington Post, these major uh, national, international media outlets have actually been able to expand their reach in the digital media ecosystem. Um, the places that have fared the worst are local and regional media, um, places that don't attract um, independent traffic on their own, um, uh, and find therefore that, you know, they're sort of at the whimsy of wherever platforms are directing traffic based on social and algorithmic information flows. Um, what that's done is, is further intensified a push in countries like the U.S. to nationalizing our politics um, while sort of hollowing out more local information ecosystems. Mm -hmm. 
And do you think that something like journalistic autonomy is affected by digital media? Yeah, I think this is a, this is a complicated one, right? Because autonomy is a very complicated concept, right? Um, even in the best of times, journalists always had to navigate relationships with the state. They had to navigate relationships with their audience. They had to navigate relationships with their editors and their publishers, right? Um, even if there were firewalls between what was happening on the editorial side and the business side, um, you know, journalists were still writing for certain audiences and writing with other colleagues in mind and writing relationally for their understanding of the political system that they were also dependent on, as well as the commercial systems they were, you know, dependent on. I think what we've seen, again, in this world of platforms where there's a few dominant players is that journalists increasingly have had to orient themselves to the ways that those platforms work, right? And some of this goes back to the dynamic that I said before, right? Um, Facebook, for instance, has um, community standards and content policies um, that shapes the very types of uh, political communication that can even happen on their platform. Right, they go far beyond the First Amendment in the United States, which is generally permissive to out, you know, to banning things like hate speech, for instance. Right, uh, things that would be considered legal in the U.S. context are are banned in, on Facebook. We can debate whether or not that's a bad thing, but what it means is that Facebook is now setting the rules for the sorts of journalistic wares that can be produced on Facebook. Right. Um, and of course, there are many other avenues that you can publish on the web, but if Facebook is the place that increasingly has lots of traffic, right, therefore journalists then have less autonomy because they're having to play by Facebook's rules in order to secure the audiences that they want or the audiences that they need, right? Um, I think another thing that we've seen pretty much in a lot of the literature on journalism are ways that autonomy is more subtly undermined by things like the introduction of metrics in the newsroom, right? So um, no longer is it um, purely, if it ever was, about sort of journalistic editorial or news judgment um, about what sorts of stories people should pursue or how those stories should be written. Now, increasingly, um, it's that professional judgment and editorial judgment that sits side by side with an instantaneous evaluation of how certain stories are performing um, when it comes to web traffic. Um, and again, that's because it's also tightly coupled to revenue streams, right? That means more clicks and more eyeballs means more revenue, commercial advertising revenue. Um, but it's also because newsrooms have an incentive that their products that they put into the world receives the widest possible reach possible. Um, so journalists, whether they realize it or not, are being incentivized to produce certain forms of content as opposed to others. Um, a great sort of example of this shift is to think about in, in the older days, uh, although it's still very culturally valued, like making the front page of the newspaper um, was a really big deal if you were a journalist, right? That was the lead story of the day, the ones that your editors and that publication judged as being the most publicly important, right? Now making the homepage of a website is a mix of that professional judgment, but also things that are performing well online that are increasing its reach and getting that outlet more attention and more coverage, right? Not to mention all the ways that journalists too are now expected to be full-fledged participants uh, on social media. So, you know, journalists who are out there writing for the New York Times or the writing for The Guardian, et cetera, are also expected to be promoting those stories on Twitter, um, to be posting about them on Facebook, maybe to be appearing on podcasts, right? So like, it's all those ways that now journalists don't entirely have autonomy over the distribution of their stories, um, but now it's happening on a much broader media ecosystem that often in turn is requiring individuals, right, to sort of disaggregate themselves from the institutional newspaper or media outlet to sort of become their own brands for their own stories. Mm -hmm. Do you think there there's any good solutions to the fact that nowadays there are many journalists and media outlets out there who have less revenue than before? Um, I mean, the best solution is the most politically unworkable, which is we need more public subsidies for, for media. Um, you know, that insulate 
media from the market um, that create zones of professional autonomy um, to, you know, be able to craft their own messages in a, in a line and in accordance with the public's interest. Um, that's not to say free from criticism. And I think that often public media institutions um, need to be much more inclusive and representative of the publics that they that they cover. Um, but it still is better than commercial media with respect to the sorts of pressures that are put on journalists to produce, um, you know, lowbrow content or content that is meant to sort of be scandalous to drive coverage um, in certain ways, right? So, and and when I say lowbrow, I mean I mean like whatever the the latest scandal is. Um, uh, that, you know, is really kind of a distraction from the major issues that we face as a, as a country. Um, right. So, um, I think, so, so one solution would be trying to insulate them from some of those pressures and creating public subsidies to, to do so. Um, we've seen various successes at things like nonprofit and community-based media startup um, over the years. Um, I personally think that platforms should invest a lot more in journalists and journalism for their platforms. Um, uh, it strikes me that, you know, Facebook and Google are reliant on a healthy media ecosystem as, as much as the public is, right? Because if Facebook became nothing but a cesspool for all fake news, like who would want to be there, right? Um, so Facebook has a stake in this as well. And I think they could do a lot more to invest in local journalism efforts um, and uh, support things like investigative journalism um, that ultimately serve the ends of the democracies that you know they're sort of invested and committed in for their very business and revenue streams. Mm -hmm. Do you think that digital media platforms can also play a role in protecting the practice of journalism? Yeah, so I mean, my sense is this, I, I think all the platforms can do a lot more to protect democracy. Journalism is a part of that, right? Because we need, we need public interest organizations that look to hold power to account, that provide the information uh, for people to make political decisions with, that represent the public back to itself in certain ways, right? Um, I think one thing that we've seen uh, in the U.S. most saliently, saliently over the last year with sort of Trump and the transition, but also globally. And, and I think in some ways the U.S. has been a test case for how platforms are going to handle things like challenges and threats to democracy. How are they going to deal with elites? But I think we've seen the platforms have a very incoherent policy to how invested they are in democracy. Um, and this comes from all sorts of things, like for on, on the one hand, like the initial and very sort of longstanding reluctance uh, to enforce content policies against people like Donald Trump, even as he was seeking to undermine the confidence in free and fair elections. Um, it was only really when the threats became very clear, um, but almost too late right, um, that Facebook and Google and Twitter started to take really drastic action to say, you know, this isn't in the public's interest, that if we have a democracy frame on our policies, we actually have to take action against the, an elite here who's actually doing something to undermine, right, the conduct of free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power. Um, we're seeing these tensions in many countries around the world, um, particularly with the rise of populism and fascism and right-wing authoritarianism, et cetera, um, as well as things like hate speech and growing hate speech in many countries. So um, I think platforms need to get far more robust in their content moderation policies. I think they need to have a commitment to defending democratic institutions um, as well as the democratic public. I think they need race conscious policies that account for things like differences in social status and social power. Um, and ultimately, I think that what they need to do, and this goes back to what we talked about before, um, promote good information, right? So like, it's not enough to simply take down bad content, right? On the flip side of that, they should be promoting things that they judge as being good content. Um, so, and, and again, this goes back to countries around the world, the, 
promote the content of election watchdogs and election administrators, um, promote the content of you know, trusted state institutions that provide and organize public information around things like public health or vaccines, um, proactively subsidize the work of journalists who are working in the public interest and have been done and have been judged by the platform to be producing reliable and credible information. Um, it's not enough that they're allowed to exist, right, uh, or promote on, on Facebook and Google and Twitter, whatever else. They should be given a positive subsidy that increases their reach, particularly in times of need, right? So, like, right now we have a global pandemic and, and lots of misinformation about vaccines. It's not enough to take down anti-vaccine content, right, that's deemed to be by the platform incredible. Un you have to then take the proactive step to then elevate positive content, right, by things like the World Health Organization or, um, you know, various other um, uh, regulatory agencies or health agencies that exist within certain countries. This doesn't mean they always have to be heavy handed about it. It doesn't mean they have to control everything that's out there. Um, it does mean that they can give additional play to things that they judge as being reliable, including the work of journalists in the context of something like a democratic election. Mm -hmm. Do you think that contemporary news consumers are more demanding? Um, <laughs> they're demanding. So this is a tough question, right? Um, I think on the one hand, they are more discriminating. Um, so one of the stories that we've seen in the US, but also in, in countries like the UK, are ways in which social identity and status politics now shape um, many different political issues and now get mapped onto like partisanship and party affiliation in various ways, right? Um, so what we've seen with that has been as people now are better represented and better tied to their parties, they come to trust things that are identity reinforcing more and distrust things that are run counter to their identities uh, more, right? So it's sort of working as a dynamic on both sides. Um, in the United States, what we've seen is the creation of a right-wing ecosystem over the last 70 years that in essence has produced an alternative to much of legacy institutional news uh, in the press. So in that sense, they're more demanding because they want things that better fit their ideologies and their identities and their interests, their political interests, right? Um, and therefore they're gonna turn to media that performs that for them, whether that's Fox News or whether that's Breitbart or One America News or um, other outlets that sort of exist within this larger conservative media sphere, talk radio, et cetera. Um, on the flip side, right, um, I think that what you see is the thing that we talked about, the dynamics that we talked about before, um, given the dynamics of social media and what gets incentivized, people are more demanding in terms of content that they want to engage with and spend time with, right? So in a high choice media environment, what it means is that people can choose to consume all these, only the stuff that they're most interested in or opt out of news all, you know, entirely. Um, the reality is people have many different choices for what to do with their lives and therefore um, they can choose to, you know, opt out entirely from any news and public affairs coverage or only choose things that's always already going to fit their own worldview in certain ways. Um, so in that sense, I think much more demanding um, because they have much more choice. Um, so it's much more of a um, you know, it's much more of a buyer's market in the sense that there are many different alternatives. If you don't like what's in the New York Times, there's CNN and there's The Guardian. I mean, you have an international news sphere to choose from. Um, uh, but, you know, on the flip side, those choices often get made in accordance with people's political and other social identities in terms of what they're going to find most engaging and most trusted. Mm -hmm. So changing topics now and moving to the last topic of our interview today, uh, does partisan identity shape how we see candidates from different parties? Yeah, so um, th this that provided a very nice transition point uh, <laughs> onto this area. But one of the things that we've seen in the United States, really in the post-civil rights movements, so we're talking about from the 1960s, 70s, 80s on, 
is what political scientists call sorting, uh, the social sorting of the electorate. In essence, we have two mega parties in the US that map onto various social groups. So uh, the Republican Party is uh, generally whiter, it's more religious, um, tends to be wealthier, it's more suburban and, and rural, it's richer. Um, the Democratic Party tends to be more secular, more clustered and built around cities, it's more multi-ethnic and, and multi-racial. Um, tends to be poorer on the whole than the Republican Party um, and tends to, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of be more of a multi-identity, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition in various ways. Um, with that, these very stark differences between types of people now become mapped onto their partisan choices. And this is what's, draw this is what's driven a lot of concern among political scientists is in that um, the choice of who you're voting for is much more significant now when it means that you're choosing between somebody who not only represents you politically, but you, you socially, your way of life versus somebody who doesn't, right? So there's a lot of concern um, that's what's sort of being driven there is that people are now voting on the basis of their social identities. Um, and um, that means that even if Americans agree on any number of range of policy choices, our politics on, have grown just much more acrimonious because the two parties represent very different people. And you can look and find their versions of this in every country, even in multi-party systems. So for instance, um, a lot of good political science work in the UK around Brexit found that um, you know, the Brexit forces tended to be white Britons who were deeply, deeply concerned with um, the social status of white um, uh, Britons in the face of immigration, right? And saw their, their status uh, and their political status and economic and cultural status sort of under threat, right? So you see this playing out in many countries around the world. I'll say on the flip side though, um, is that even while this has raised concerns over democracy, at least in the US, we've also seen it furthering democracy in certain ways because the Democratic Party has embraced this agenda of a multi-ethnic and multi-racial democracy that has given shape to um, demands for truly racial equity in the US on fair terms. So in a world pre-civil rights movement, when we actually had more political consensus, it was actually consensus among whites in both parties who sort of kept a racial status quo and a hierarchy very much in order where whites were at the top and everyone else sort of had a lesser form of political status, right? Um, across any one of a number of dimensions. Now you see the Democratic Party in the US being the institutional vehicle for a true push to social and political equity. Um, so that's actually furthering democracy in various ways, even as it's driving the cross-party pressures uh, to be even uh, more sort of heightened and in greater tension. Mm -hmm. So one last question. When thinking about partisan identity, do you look at it mostly as a matter of beliefs and the specific content of people's beliefs, or is it mostly about socially signaling group allegiance or group yeah. identity or something like that? Yeah, so the um, so there's various debates in the academic literature about this, right? <laughs> and, and we have so many different terms for this. Um, we have terms of ideological polarization, which is uh, sort of related at the level of political attitudes and policies. Um, we see terms like social polarization, which is the differences between people's identities. Um, we see, um, you know, various other terms or other, we see moral polarization, for instance, which is at the level of values. Um, uh, so there are many different dimensions that this is, this is taking shape on. Um, but broadly, I would say that it tends to be driven by certain social status groups, right? So the certain social identities that you're a part of, their group position is what's being defended. 
Um, so, and that maps onto policy sometimes, sometimes not, right? Sometimes that maps onto a bigger set of cultural arguments, like people want to elect somebody who they feel like is going to represent them culturally, even if there's not a specific set of policies that might flow from that. Um, but it's, I think it's really the fundamental underlying dynamic is a contest over social status for these various social groups, especially race and ethnicity in the United States, class in other countries, gender, et cetera. Um, but it's that idea that people have social identities that maps onto social status. And what is forming the basis of politics are these fundamental conflicts um, over the social status of various groups. Um, and that can be represented in various ways, culturally, economically, policy-wise, et cetera. But that's that fundamental driver, is that story of who we are vis-a-vis -vis other groups and where do we fit in some sort of social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Very well. So, Dr. Kreis, just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Yeah, so uh, my website has links to lots of my uh, lots of my papers and my public writing, danielcreese.com, um, the UNC Center for Information Technology and Public Life uh, is the center that I'm a part of. We have a world-class group of researchers and we're constantly putting out reports on a lot of the stuff that we touched on and talked about today. So that would be the other uh, go-to point. Okay, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all. <laughs>